Since our colleague, the late Dr. Li Wenliang, sounded the first alarms of a novel coronavirus last December, COVID-19 has developed into a global pandemic. Not since the flu of 1918 has our society experienced this degree of threat to our health and to our happiness. This is a unique moment in our history, and we here at The Surgery Set are doing what we know how to do, which is to say podcasting to help. We're telling the stories of this time from the people on the front lines. In these uncertain times, we want you to feel informed. We want you to feel supported. We want to give you the tools to be resilient in the face of what may be the hardest few months of our lives. And we want to remind you frequently and forcefully that you are awesome. These are the stories from the front line of this global crisis, featuring visits with the heroes who are making a difference when we need them the most, and ideas for how to stay well and balanced as we learn to live in social distance. From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, this is The Front Lines of COVID, a Surgery Set series. I'm Jonathan Kohler, a pediatric surgeon trying my best. Welcome. The first case of COVID-19 in the United States was announced on January 21st, and the first death just over a week later. That's 84 days ago. Seems like the blink of an eye sometimes, and a decade the rest of the time. So much of our time, every person's time over those 84 days, has been in service of our community response to the virus, to the one truly effective treatment we had, physical distancing to reduce the rate of infection and buy time for better treatments to be developed. We've heard of a few of these in the news. Often the promise seems to get ahead of the science. But one of the most promising therapies isn't actually new at all. It's been around since the 1880s, and it's produced in the bodies of people who've had an infection and successfully fought it off. It's called convalescent plasma, and we delivered our first dose of it here in Madison two days ago. That's light speed for approval of a study, and we're just one of hundreds of sites trying it out across the country and the world. The head of the study here is Bill Hartman from Anesthesia, along with Joe Connor in Transfusion Medicine. They join us to talk about how they made a plasma transfusion study come together so fast, how the process works, and how people who've had COVID-19 and recovered can join the long list of volunteers looking to contribute their literal blood to help their neighbors. Bill and Joe, thank you so much for joining us on the surgery set to talk about what I know is kind of a hot issue of the day in an era where it seems as though there's a lot going on and not a lot of hope. You two are both involved in something that I think is tremendously interesting and and potentially hopeful, which is convalescent plasma. Maybe just introduce us to the concept of convalescent plasma. It's it's an idea that's been around for a long time and has been used before, but is uh, only now sort of coming online as a potential treatment for, for COVID. Sure. So convalescent plasma, the idea of it is simply taking plasma from one individual and giving it to another individual. Plasma, as we know, is the the liquid part of blood and contains antibodies. And so in a person who has successfully recovered from COVID-19, the idea is that they have antibodies to the virus in their plasma. If we can take that and give it to a person who is sick, we can give them an immune boost to help them fight off this infection. I sort of think of that and tell me if this is right. Like it's almost like you sort of short circuit a vaccine. Like if the role of a vaccine is to help yeah. you build antibodies to a virus, this sort of takes the antibodies that have already been made by someone else who's been vaccinated by way of being infected and, and right. gives you that protection. Is that 
accurate? This is a, a vaccine would be active immunization where you, you present a molecule that is part of the virus or part of, or, or a component of the virus and have the, the patient create an immune response on their own, actively make it their, themselves. Convalescent plasma is an example of passive immunity where we're actually just passively transfusing antibodies that someone else had already created that will target the virus. This is a, an idea that's been around for a long time. It's been used in treatment for, for other viral infections. I've been stunned to see kind of how quickly the process of trying this out for COVID disease has, um, has come online. Can you talk a little bit about like how you went from thinking like, oh, this is something we should try to, uh, to getting it operationalized? And I think it was just yesterday that the first transfusion went into a patient at, at UW. The concept of this national consortium for this COVID-19 convalescent plasma program came just from a, a discussion about five weeks ago between Arturo Casadevall at Johns Hopkins and Mike Joyner at Mayo Clinic. They knew that there was a, a history of convalescent plasma working in viruses that we don't currently have a vaccine for. So they through their own interactions and then those interactions networking with other people developed this consortium of hospitals and, and universities to have a, a central database but different arms all over the country so that we could get plasma to patients that need it. Within our own university here at, at University of Wisconsin, the concept to transfusion took 15 days and it was a tremendous effort by coordinators by Betsy Nugent's office, Jen Parnell, by Joe and his team. Everyone did their part to really make this a priority, make this their, their, their number one goal to get a treatment here to get another tool in the toolbox, if you will. It was a Herculean effort and like nothing I've ever seen before. Yeah, I mean, when you think about what it normally is involved in starting up a trial of a new therapy. You think not in terms of days, but in terms of months or even years to get things up and running. Uh, that's correct. And so typically something like this uh, could take six to eight months to set up. There's a lot of IRB approvals. There's a lot of committees that are formed, et cetera. Here, we had people who were essentially the tops of each of their committees and they came together and everyone had this can-do attitude to get this program launched and, and off the ground. And, and like I said, I've, I've never seen anyone, anything like this, be able to, to put a program together so quickly and effectively to the point where it's running like a machine now. Let's talk a little bit about how that machine runs. So um, you've now administered a, a convalescent plasma transfusion, but what's the, what's the process? How does this work? The uh, donor selection we didn't really have time to go through the IRB to uncover identities of patients who have a positive COVID test. So we appealed to the public through the media and hoped that by appealing to the, to the goodness of people, they would step up. And the Madison community has been great. They've contacted us and we currently have a list of about 300 potential donors. Those, you those consider how many people we think have COVID in the greater Madison area. That's a good percentage of, of people who have had an infection. Right, it, it's unbelievable. Yeah. The donors have to have had a positive COVID test and have to be at least 14 days out since their 
symptoms. So they have to have their symptoms resolved for about 14 days. We will retest them at that point for COVID at the AOB building. The test takes about 24 hours to get back. If that test is negative, then we will schedule them with the American Red Cross to go ahead and have their, their plasma collected. And then it's your court, right, Joe? Yeah. I've been kind of approaching this whole thing as like there's three major components to what we're doing. There's a big, a big regulatory component, which involves having the appropriate approvals, the IRB approval, and the consenting process for recipient patients. Then we have the, the actual collection. A lot of larger you know, university-type hospitals have the luxury of having their own collection facility as part of their transfusion medicine departments because we have a an extremely large robust system you know just a mile away from us in the american red cross here in madison we don't actually have and we don't actually provide collection facilities on site literally once we've identified someone as a potential donor and we refer them to the american red cross they have several different mechanisms for doing an apheresis collection of plasma from donors. Once the, the donor is in the Red Cross's hands, the Red Cross though is required via FDA regulations that the donor has to, to meet all the other criterion for a regular blood or plasma donation. Hmm. So all of these donors, when they, when they are collected, they're administered the same donor question, donor health questionnaire as any other blood donor. They have to answer all those questions correctly. They have their, their minimal physical examination that goes on. And then their collection happens. And before those units or before that product can actually be issued, they also are subjected to all the basic infectious disease testing that any other blood donation is subjected to. So they're tested for HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, syphilis, et cetera. In addition, female donors, we also need to do some additional testing to make sure that they're eligible as a plasma donor. So all those things go on in the background. So literally the time between then plasma collection and when the Red Cross could potentially issue us a unit of that plasma to the hospital is roughly about 48 hours after collection. So once the units are out of their Red Cross time in quarantine after they've passed all of the donor criterion, then the Red Cross is, is able to forward those to the blood bank here at UW. The third cog in our, in our wheel is our blood bank's then ability to actually be able to bring those units into inventory here and then be able to track what happens to that unit over its lifetime. The units are sent to us frozen as a fresh frozen plasma with a special attribute to tell us that they are COVID-19 convalescent plasma. They're labeled specially by the Red Cross as being convalescent plasma. And then so we essentially can bring them into our inventory here and that then allows us to be able to make them accessible to acceptable donors. We currently are in a, in a situation where plasma, it doesn't have to be cross-matched like a unit of red blood cells does but we issue them in a type-specific or a type-compatible way with the recipient's blood type. So we need to know the recipient's blood type. We know the, the donor's blood type. It comes labeled that way as part of the Red Cross's workup. And is it one donor, one recipient? Uh, that, that depends. The, the currently, our Red Cross facilities, our collection facilities have two different instruments, phoresis instruments that we can collect plasma units from. One of those instruments for each, each donation yields us two recipients worth of plasma. Hmm. The other instruments, each donor unit allows us three recipients. 
So depending on which instrument the donation is collected on, it's split into either two or three recipient units per collection. The pragmatics of all this stuff is, I just think, endlessly fascinating. How you kind of just like work with the, the machines and you're sort of doing it on the fly. I would say once we once we get a donor identified and they meet the donor criterion that that Dr. Hartman had explained, from there on out, it really becomes just a regular plasma donation, similar to any other plasma that's collected and transfused, other than it's just going to very specific people. Are you testing the plasma for specific COVID antibodies, or are you just sort of you you hope that people have made? appropriate antibodies as part of their response to the disease? Kind of both. The answer is not yet because there's not yet in the U.S. an FDA-approved assay to do that with. There are a lot of experimental assays. Here at UW, we're currently, we've got it narrowed down to two tests that we're thinking of bringing up. Those will probably still be another week or two away. The Red Cross will be doing the same process and coming with the test that they choose to bring up to identify antibody and hopefully also provide some type of quantitation via, via, via a titering system to have us understand how much antibody there may be in each individual unit. But for, for right now, we're, we're making the assumption based on some research data that most people that have been infected with COVID-19 make sufficient amounts of antibodies in their plasma for their units to be therapeutic even before we have the ability to do testing on it. How are you selecting the patients who, who get this therapy? Patient selection is dictated by the protocol that we are bound to. There's two uh, categories of patients. The, the first are considered severely ill, and these patients are dyspneic. They could have a respiratory rate greater than 30. They could have a PF ratio less than 300. They could have a blood uh, oxygen saturation of less than 93%. The other group of patients that uh, is considered are the life-threatening patients. And these patients are typically ventilated with or without multi-organ failure. How do we know if this is working? You know, I think one thing that I know people are struggling with in the data that's coming out around COVID, which is just coming fast and furious, is people are trying all sorts of medications and patients are getting better. But how do you, how do you connect that to the therapy in, in a disease where people can get better on their own? Well, I think that that's a good question. And we don't really have a timeline. People get better when they come off the ventilators, when we have a decreased time in the ICU or decreased admissions to the ICU. These are all endpoints that, that we're looking at. Does it happen one day? Does it happen three days? Does it happen five days after the patient receives plasma? We don't know because essentially what we're doing is giving them an immune boost, but that patient still has to fight off the COVID infection and they still have to recover from the disease. So we're not, there's no Lazarus effect. There's no giving uh, plasma and then the patient wakes up and is doing fine. It is a progressive way of going about things. And we just are consistently and constantly uh, monitoring the patients and looking for signs of improvement. And this is a national study, right? There's how many, however many centers doing this simultaneously. I assume you're coordinating your efforts and pooling that data and, and looking for you know, those results to, to become clear as time goes on with the large effect sizes of, of many hospitals across the country. That's true. The patients are all enrolled individually uh, into a central database that is being kept at Mayo Clinic currently. We give updates starting at four hours after the transfusion for each patient, and there's periodic updates on the data from there, one day, three days, seven days, different intervals. The goal there is with all 800 and some hospitals that are participating in the study now, is that we'll have a, a, a large 
pool of patients to, to gather data from, and we can, we can quickly figure out, is this a safe procedure? Is this an effective procedure? And what is, the, what is the best way and the best mode of delivering this therapy? Did you say 800 hospitals? I believe it's, it's grown to 800 hospitals now, yes. That's just astonishing. I mean, in, the, in a period of, of weeks to have an 800 center trial of a therapy and a therapy that requires a lot of, you know, it's, it's not, it's not an FDA approved medication, right? It's like a blood transfusion, which is one of the most heavily regulated things we do. I mean, that's just Correct. incredible. Yeah, and it's, it's technically all, all the products although they are collected the same as any other plasma product, they, they are specifically labeled that it's an investigational blood product only to be given under certain approvals and certain criteria. The other thing that's interesting though is, you know, we're, we're doing this and we're treating these like these special units because it's from people who have recovered from COVID-19 infections. But when you think about it, a plasma transfusion at any other time is passively immunizing the recipient to any process that the donor had been exposed to in their life. So many, many of us have antibodies to chickenpox, and we have antibodies to measles and mumps and all those things we are vaccinated against. We're passively immunizing people with each other's antibodies every time we do a, a, any type of a plasma-containing transfusion process. So it's just that we, we kind of tried to, you know, we selected out the ones who would have the antibodies that we want here, but we're passively transfusing antibodies every time we give someone a plasma transfusion uh, of any kind. Yeah, so it's, it's not a total reinvention of the wheel, but it's a real application of, of, a, of an right. established technology. And I just think, you know, as you think about the story and the metaphors of COVID, right, that wouldn't it be amazing to have us be the answer to our problem, right? To have our, our fellow man kind of literally be not the cure, but at least, you know, a therapy in the face of, of a disease that others does not have a lot of good therapy. I think you see that just in the fact of the number of people that want to be donors for this, you know, right. just like the, the people come pouring out of the woodwork. A lot of people that want to be donors are people right now, because unfortunately, since we don't have an antibody test, there are people that are coming forward that say, I know I was infected, I was sick, my whole family was probably sick with this, but none of us ever got tested. We, we want to contribute, but right now, because we don't have an antibody test to, to verify that they had been infected and potentially are immune, we, at this point, we have to still exclude a lot of people as donors. And that's what, another thing that a serology test and antibody test would allow you to do would be to like right. find people who didn't necessarily yeah. get the virus test, the RT-PCR, but the Correct. demonstrated to be immune. Correct. Yeah. Right now we're locked in. You have to be able to prove you had a, a, a PCR test positive. So for people who do want to get involved and as this process expands, and hopefully we find that this is, is really a useful therapy. So we'll, if, if so, then there will be a huge demand for donors. How, how do people get involved? How, how can you find out if you're eligible? How can you get your name on a list? What's the path for people who want to pitch in? So we have a, a hotline number that's been set up. It is answered by one of many of our coordinators here and they can do the the screening questions and get the the ball running that number here at wisconsin is 608-262-8300 and we also have a toll-free number that's 833-306-0681 well thank you both so much for for telling me about what i i hope is uh, you know an effective therapy and certainly an exciting avenue of investigation i think incredible work that that you all have done um, moving a mountain in a 
you know, the equivalent medical equivalent of a minute. Just so exciting to hear about how you guys are, are helping out uh, in this, this battle. Well, thank you. Like, like we said, teamwork makes the dream work. And uh, this team has been <laughs> unbelievable. Lots of people and lots and lots of effort in the last two weeks. Joe Connor and William Hartman, thank you so much. I look forward to hearing about uh, how this all plays out in the days and weeks to come. Thank you. Let us know. Bill Hartman and Joe Connor are coordinating the UW-Madison's Convalescent Plasma Project. For more information on the program here, and a link to the National Study site that has lots of up-to-the-minute information for doctors, patients, and potential donors, see the show notes. If it does indeed turn out that the answer to this crisis lies within us, not just metaphorically, but literally, that would be quite a thing. How are you doing in all this? I feel as though the adrenaline is falling away, the novelty, and the reality of this new normal is hitting home. It's gone from feeling hard to believe that this is happening to being hard to believe that this is ever going to end. So these stories of promise, of the time we've bought our country being used well, are important touchstones to remember that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, that you are doing something, even when you're sitting home doing nothing, that the sacrifices so many people, every person, are making are worth it. There's a poem about that called Sometimes. The poet who wrote it doesn't like her name attached to it, and I'll honor that. But if you like it as I do, you can find a link in the show notes. Sometimes. Sometimes things don't go, after all, from bad to worse. Some years, muscadel faces down frost, green thrives, the crops don't fail. Sometimes a man aims high and all goes well. A people sometimes will step back from war, elect an honest man, decide they care enough that they can't leave some stranger poor. Some men become what they were born for. Sometimes our best efforts do not go amiss. Sometimes we do as we meant to. The sun will sometimes melt a field of sorrow that seemed hard frozen. May it happen for you. If you have an experience with COVID-19 you'd like to share or a question you want answered on the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out to me on Twitter at J-E Kohler. That's K-O-H-L-E-R. You can also send me an email at Kohler at surgery.wisc.edu. If you want to hear about something other than COVID-19, our regular program is focused on the latest innovations in surgery, including interviews with the pioneers at its cutting edge. If you're new here, feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson, J.P. Swenson, and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was edited by J.P. Swenson. Special thanks to Nicole Jennings, Rebecca Minter, and everyone else in our department pulling together during this adventure. Until next time, be well and stay in touch, friends. Remember, you can't stop the clock. This too shall pass.